I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Tell the world I'm coming home. Let the rain wash away all the pain of yesterday. Welcome to Coming Home Well. I'm your host, Tyler Piron, and thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to the only show that focuses on educating civilians about veterans' issues. So many of our soldiers are not coming home well. They are having some challenges, whether it's finding a job, dealing with post-traumatic stress, or any other number of things that just make life hard for veterans as they return home. So our goal is to educate citizens and civilians and people around the military veteran on how they can help veterans come home well. This week, we talked to Lynn Lennon. She's a biofeedback specialist. She's a nurse, and she helps people figure out how to use their own brains and own minds to heal some of the fight-or-flight instincts and to really reach that peak performance again. And then we have Coach's Corner with Alfredo Torres. So let's jump in and talk to Lynn Lennon. Welcome to Coming Home Well. I'm your host, Tyler Piron. And today we have something a little bit different. We're going to sit down with Lynn Lennon. Now, I mispronounce names all the time, but I think I got it right. She is the founder and owner of Richmond Peak Performance. It's in Richmond, and she educates and energizes her clients with a multimodal, that means many paths, towards achieving optimal health using neurofeedback and biofeedback. Now, if you're not sure what neurofeedback and biofeedback is, we are going to get it from uh, Lynn, and she's going to tell us about it and how it helps people in general, but also in with veterans. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. So tell me about peak performance. How did this come about? So, uh, the notion of peak performance relates to um, how to live and function optimally. And so it, it, it really ties into your ability to um, live your life to your fullest. You know, are you able to perform maximally on all levels? And interestingly, we cannot typically perform maximally on all levels when our health is not maximal, whether our body or our brain are not tuned well, we're not going to perform optimally. But interestingly, um, kind of one of the overarching themes of peak performance work is learning how to not be in fight or flight at will. So the analogy I often give is from sports. We all know people who have incredible athletic talent. But what is the difference in the differential between somebody that has incredible athletic talent and somebody that's a world-class athlete? A world-class athlete has the ability to shut down fight or flight at will, or at least to, to drastically minimize it. So interestingly, so many people that I work with, um, whether it's veterans that have PTSD and or brain injury or both, or just the general population, the principles of peak performance training help to facilitate global holistic total healing and uh it's kind of a win-win-win it can't hurt you <laughs> it's only going to help things get better and when you guys talk about peak performance you're really talking about how your brain is operating as, as sort of the foundation of everything else you do yeah the cns it, you know your, your central nervous system is like the the os and the computer you know it's your operating system mainframe operating system 
And light has a tendency, um, I guess you should back up and say that you know, nature wired us in such a way that fight or flight was the default. And that was by design because nature knew that if you were locked into fight or flight, you had a greater chance of living long enough to procreate. So we all tend to get tripped into fight or flight and we often tend to get stuck into fight or flight pretty heavily. And we have this wonderful nerve in our body. And this nerve is called the vagus nerve. And many of the people have probably heard that term before. I like to even unpack what that word means. It's a Latin word and it means wanderer. This large cranial nerve, the 10th cranial nerve, comes out near the brainstem. It's technically a branch nerve that goes down through your body. And it, innerv- it, it, it touches base and innervates all of your major visceral organs. This nerve is the brake on fight or flight. So you are going to be in fight or flight, which means you're going to be in that sympathetic dominant state um, pretty much as a default, unless your vagus nerve is inhibiting the fight or flight. And so what most people don't know, they don't even know they have a vagus nerve. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know when they're in fight or flight. They don't know why it matters to not be in fight or flight. And they definitely don't know how to activate that vagus nerve at will, on demand, to shut down fight or flight. So that's really kind of the, the main body of most peak performance work is helping people to learn how to, what is my vagus nerve, how to fire it, and how to interact with this information in a real world way. Sometimes we do that with biofeedback. Um, I have you know, EEG equipment. It's not medical grade EEG equipment. It's biofeedback grade EEG equipment. But I put people uh, on the electrodes and we look at brain waves and I'll just show them a simple breathing exercise. And it does not take any fancy training at all to see a chaotic pattern go into calm order after five cycles of box breathing <laughs> or something like that. You know, it's, it's, it definitely sells itself. At that point, I don't have to sell the breathing exercises to somebody that you should be doing this. They see it and they're like, I'm all in. How much am I doing this? How much, how much do I do it daily or weekly? And so that's kind of the essence of peak performance is learning about, I, I like to tell everybody that they have a Ferrari. It's true. Your brain is the most impressive processor in the known universe, even if it has been damaged, even if it had congenital problems, even if you have diabetes, whatever. It is still the most phenomenal processor. And I think people are as categorically underappreciate what they've got here in the skull. And so I teach people you have this amazing, amazing organ, this amazing brain. It's a vehicle. And this is how we need to give it you know, proper care and feeding and, and nourishment on all levels. Everything is food, not just food, food, but everything is food. The media you take in, the, the, the quality of, the, of your sleep, everything's food. The, the, relationships, the way you spend time, it's all food for the So we, we learn all of these principles about neuroplasticity and about um, the vagus nerve and how to not be in fight or flight. And over time in working with people, in addition to doing the neurofeedback, we build total optimal health. So now we've mentioned two terms, neurofeedback and biofeedback. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, what are they and what is the difference between them? Super question. Um, so Neurofeedback is a form of biofeedback. And bio means life. Feedback refers to an information loop. So with biofeedback, we are taking um, life information off of your body and we're feeding back to your your conscious awareness. And you're learning how to use that information to better regulate your nervous system in some way. So for example, if someone came to me and they were a migraineur and they had terrible migraines for years and wanted to learn to not have migraines, one of those classic interventions for that in biofeedback world is 
you get a thermometer and you give them a thermometer to take home and they have to learn how to increase their peripheral temperature, like on their fingertip, from say 92 degrees to 94 degrees, 96 degrees, maybe if you're lucky. Um, and when you are, the only way that you can do that is by activating your vagus nerve. So the, the practitioner will teach the person breath work and visualization exercises so that they can, over time, it's sort of like learning how to wiggle your ears. That's what I always call up my grandfather from the past. I had a grandfather that could wiggle his ears, and I was always so jealous as a kid. Grandpa, how do you wiggle your ears? And he would just wiggle them. And so learning to, to activate your vagus, vagus nerve at will on demand is sort of like that. It's a weird kind of a je ne sais quoi type. Uh, I don't, it's hard to describe feeling or sensation, but once you practice it, you do come to understand, oh, that's that feeling, that feeling that takes me to the good positive outcome. And so over time, the, the person with migraines can learn to, well, as soon as they have a symptom come on, they do their, their um, internal work to activate the vagus nerve. That increases blood supply to the periphery, which increases blood supply to the cortex. That stops the cortical spreading of the migraine, and then on the migraine one. So the big difference between biofeedback and neurofeedback is kind of one of uh, fancy complexity. So neurofeedback is, is a little newer. And with that, we put electrodes on the brain. They're just little buttons. They don't put anything into standard electrodes. Do not put anything into the brain. I just want to clarify that these days. I don't zap brains. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan of magnetic stuff and zapping of brains. I kind of advocate for the, the brain that <laughs> that's receiving these things uh, kind of forcefully. So anyway, the electrodes will pick up a signal from your brain. Your neurons are in there firing. They're kind of purring away to the tens of the thousands. When they get into uh, orchestrated rhythms, they create oscillations, and we pick those up with the buttons. We then take that information. We put it through an amplifier that cleans up the signal, amplifies it so that we can work with it and use it as a data stream, and we have that come into the computer. And I have software, and so I'll make a request on my computer of someone's brain. And I'll ask for a better firing pattern. Um, most people, I don't know if you, a lot of your people have probably heard of Dr. Daniel Amen. He's probably one of the most famous brain educators out there. And he's famous for his SPECT imaging. Dr. Daniel Amen has done so much imaging of the brain that he's he has uh, identified the diamond pattern of activation, which is uh, where these deep lower brain structures get really kind of overactivated in PTSD and the cortex is shut off. So with the brain, the brain just follows the general physiology, which is you're only going to be in one of two drives at any given time, for the most part. You're, you're basically going to be firing in a parasympathetic rest and digest mode, or you're going to be firing in the sympathetic um, fight or flight type mode. And so anyway, back to our little thing, Dr. Daniel Eamon, he, he recognized that there's all this excess firing happening in the bottom and the back of the brain. So... If I want to get someone's cortex on, and I want them to ha have better executive function, so they have better mood, they have better attention, they have better ability to orchestrate their day and their life, um, we need to shift the brain out of fight or flight. And so that with the neurofeedback, we'll put the leads off in the front part of the brain and try to activate the frontal structures of the brain or interhemispherically to help with that. I mean, there are many forms of neurofeedback. This is just one kind of classic thing that we do. But you, you asked me, what is the difference, really, between bio and neurofeedback? And one of the main, most interesting differences is one of conscious awareness. So you may have noticed that a few minutes ago, I said, biofeedback, I'm, I'm giving you information to your conscious mind. 
The really amazing thing about neurofeedback is your conscious mind doesn't do the work. Your subconscious processor does. So after I get the leads on someone's head, the little buttons, and we've got them all hooked up, typically in my office, they often watch a movie. And the movie is kind of a lure for the brain behavior. And when they're meeting the goal that I'm asking for, maybe it's more connection between the two hemispheres because that will increase vagal tone. Um, then the movie will be clear and easy to see. If they fall off of that goal, then the movie boxes in, it fades out. It's hard to, it's hard to um, see the movie. And it's basically, a, they believe that it's operant conditioning. Um, there's, there, I think there are classical conditioning aspects to it. I think there's operant conditioning aspects to it. There are all kinds of subtleties to an art from neurofeedback practice. Um, I believe that and I, a really high-level neurofeedback practice should be a whole lot of science wrapped in a nice shell of artfulness um, because that's when it's really smooth and pleasurable. and um, It's fun. It's just fun. And it's. Um, I think one thing that's really also nice for the veteran community, I work with a lot of veterans thanks to a grant that I have. And, and by the time people do find me, they've often really just been through the ringer. I mean, they've been through the ringer in the service. Then they've been to the ringer after the service you know, on so many levels, you know, cultural levels and, and in the, the system, the healthcare system that they deal with, it can be really challenging. And it's kind of nice to walk into a relaxing room and flop down a chair and know that you're going to have a therapy that's going to help you, that you don't have to work with anybody. So that's the main difference between them, the, um, the bio and the feedback is both of them, you're taking data points off the brain and we're learning to better shift and neuromodulate our nervous systems. One is a little bit simpler, more old-fashioned, usually involves conscious effort, and one is fancier, newer. And it, it may have some conscious elements to it, but it's largely done by the unconscious. Okay, that's an excellent explanation of the two. It's very interesting how they one is very focused. You have to sort of make yourself do something. And the other is more relaxed. You're trying to by regulating how your brain is operating, you get some instant feedback on how well it's working. And so I, I know as a veteran, you know, kind of a focused, I want to see results, but I'd probably like the latter, the, the less uh, cautious thought and just make sure my performance is working. But I suppose everybody's different. So once you're training your brain, especially getting out of the fight or flight response, which is such a hallmark of PTSD and and related issues, especially with TBIs, you get out of that fight or flight. Now you're using your frontal cortex. You're thinking more. You're thinking better. It sounds like your goal is so that they don't come back and see you. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I want people to, uh, the analogy, I use the old-fashioned analogy of I'd like to teach you to fish, not just give you a fish. And so I love my patients, and um, many of them I've now developed really rich relationships with that have gone on for years. But yes, I, I get a kick out of how quickly I can help people not need me. And I also am really, really, uh, I guess because I'm a nurse, I'm not a doctor, I don't practice medicine, I don't treat medical illness directly, and I never diagnose. My Big, one of the big things in my scope of practice is education. And I use education as this massive tool of empowerment. So when people come to me, everybody gets a free consult, period. doesn't matter if you're a veteran or not. And because I'm old-fashioned, I grew up in the country, and I believe in real-world relationships. And I think that we have to establish um, mutually that this looks like it would work. 
you know, that, that you feel good with me and I feel good with you. And I think that we have a good workable um, platform here and it makes sense for us to proceed. So in that initial, usually when I invite people for that initial thing, I would say, bring, be ready to write because um, I want people to immediately start learning more about their beautiful mind, their beautiful brain, their beautiful nervous system and how to activate, regulate it and care for it. And it's after doing this work now for, for several years, I'm absolutely dumbfounded why it's almost criminal to me why there's not more basic education. What, why didn't we learn how to shift our vagus nerve before our tests when we were in grade school? Why were we not taught how to shift out of fight or flight when we were itty bitty? Why don't our doctors first assess our vagal tone before giving us medical treatments? Because we don't heal when we're in high sympathetic fight or flight tone. Healing happens in rest and digest mode. Why is this not a foundational applied concept? It's an intellectual concept, but it's not, not commonly applied. So anyway, I'm just really big on education. And I could just imagine the challenge of teaching a classroom full of third graders or fifth graders. <laughs> I have kids at home and trying to get them to uh, shift their vagal nerve by some conscious action. Uh, okay, well, let me jump in real quick and just tell you, uh, as a you know, a former homeschooling mother who has a brain-injured epileptic child, my son is brain-injured from epilepsy, um, I feel your pain on that. However, I will give, I like to give resources. Mindful.org is a great place online that has a lot of uh, research, a lot of uh, resources for teachers and, and parents for, you know, introducing these concepts in a basic way. Oh, absolutely. I could totally yeah. see how it could be done. I could yeah. just, being the first to do it, I think it would be a challenge. But yeah. I think uh, the results would probably be very fantastic. Oh, you know, yeah. And that's where I remember teaching and talking with my kids about, you know, taking deep breaths and relaxing before you take a test because they're all uh, sort of type A, want to do 100% and get it's real beat cool. down if they don't. Right. But, you know, this sounds like it could be used for a lot of things, not just fight or flight with TBIs and PTSD. So there must be a, a wide range of other things that biofeedback and neurofeedback can be used by everybody. What are some of the other areas and things that biofeedback and, and peak performance addresses? Uh, I usually answer that question with a, a kind of a mirthful quote from Mrs. Offmer. Mrs. Offmer is one of probably the three to five most famous people in neurofeedback, and I'm blessed to have studied a little bit with her and her husband and with some of the other big people. It's not that I'm so special. It's just that if you're in neurofeedback, it's a fairly small insular world. And if you're going to get trained, you're, we still have this luxury of going and training with the big guys and you know, the big people because they're still here. So I encourage anybody who has an interest in this as a young person to jump in quickly because a lot of our um, senior teachers that created this field are aging out fairly soon. Probably they're not going to be available for teaching. But um, yes, there's a broad range. And Mrs. Offmer has this wonderful little quote. She says, well, neurofeedback helps anything that the brain regulates. And then so you let that yeah, sit in a minute and you realize everything. that's everything. Um, so it can op it optimizes and helps most things if it is done well. Um, I will say that there's plenty of bad neurofeedback out there. And uh, there's plenty of um, you know, well-meaning people and, and just um, not very... Uh, experienced people. I was one of those people at one time, you know, not to denigrate. Everybody needs to start somewhere, but on the whole, it helps any nervous system be better if, because we're not meant to be in fight or flight at all times. We're meant to abide in the rest and digest mood. Um, 
which Sapolsky, the great Sapolsky, wrote the book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and he talks about this and how the human brain is, is one of the, I think it's the main one on the planet that has this problem of getting stuck in fight or flight. What does the zebra do? The zebra you know, goes and kills that antelope, has some sympathetic fight or flight to get the antelope, and then they come back and lick their paws for two and a half days. <laughs> you know, the zebra doesn't stay stuck in that mode. But humans, because our neocortex is so big and our prefrontal is so large, it's really new, evolutionarily speaking. If you believe in evolution, it's fairly new. And not all the kinks have been worked out. <laughs> and so we get stuck in better play easily for that reason. Um, but neurofeedback, to, to answer it kind of on a more layman level, or a more common, common sense answer, it can help things like ADHD. It can help things like anxiety. It's tremendous. The data is tremendous for migraines and headaches. It's tremendous for sleep. Uh, it's used a lot in sports. Um, you would be surprised how many of your favorite athlete, athletic stars use neurofeedback, especially in the off-season. A lot of times when people aren't training their body, they're training their mind, they're training their brain, they're training their brain. Um, that, there's a reason why Tiger Woods, when he's getting ready to make that $16 million cut, has a long pause. You ever notice that? It's like, come on, hit the ball. Come on, hit the ball. <laughs> it's because Tiger needs to, to do his four to six full coherent breaths to shut down the fight or flight response. So that his cortex where his motor timing and his you know, motor stripping are all completely fired up, filled with blood, so that all of his thousands and thousands of hours of training will come down. So he can so it, it's a, and, and hit, make the putt because he's, he's not stressing out about all the impact of it. Right. So I guess the other thing I would just say about what it can help Really, we couldn't really gain much benefit from neurofeedback if we didn't have this wonderful inherent um, quality of neuroplasticity. And I guess I should unpack that because there are still people. It's really a common word in some circles and other circles. And I had some people in my office today that didn't know what neuroplasticity meant. And it's a wonderful concept. It's important to learn. Your brain is a malleable thing. It's constantly evolving. Sometimes I use the analogy of a rewritable hard drive. It's this kind of rewritable hard drive that's evolving and changing over time in response to your experiences, to the thing, your behaviors, your choices. Every single thing you do today creates the brain tomorrow. Everything. A little bit of intimidating when you unpack that because it, it really matters. I'm actually sitting on a chair right now that is a, an active sitting chair. So it, it's kind of shaped like a saddle. And as I'm sitting here, I'm forced to fire my core my cerebellum and my basal ganglia while I'm talking to you. Well, because I'm a nerd, I know that that fires your prefrontal. And so that keeps you really frontal and sparkly and awake for something which I want to do for an interview. Everything matters. The choice of your chairs matter. Um, the lighting matters. Um, the light on behind me that has a lot of blue in it, I really should have turned it off before this interview because blue light is really not natural for the brain to receive it for 30 p.m. So um, everything is an input. And everything matters, but the, the neuroplasticity uh, is the the magic given. <laughs> it's the kind of the fabric. We, we take advantage of that and hijack it for people's benefit. The brain is neuroplastic for the entire lifespan. I have clients over eighty. You can can change your brain and change your uh, tune your nervous system for the better at any age. Yes, it is most highly neuroplastic from around 11 to 14, 9 to 14, somewhere in there. There's a really magic window of plasticity. But you can 
you can learn at any age. You know, neurofeedback and these kinds of interventions can help people at any age. Sometimes I have clients that have advanced Parkinson's or um, some dementia issues going on. If their doctor okays that they do neurofeedback and they do the neurofeedback. And our main goal is simply to slow down the progression of disease. Is neurofeedback going to stop Parkinson's? Probably not. Um, I don't know of any cases where it has, but can hit drastically improve someone's quality of life just so that they enjoy their time with their spouse, they enjoy the time with their family, they have better quality sleep, um, they have more smiles and less problems during their days. Yes, it can. Um, I have dealt with people that have congenital issues. You know, there are a lot of people walking around that have really poor connection between their hemispheres. If you do a bunch of neurofeedback between the hemispheres of the brain, you can actually you know, help encourage the brain to have better mapping physiology through brain chase engine hemispheric connectivity. I'm just kind of setting up the causes and conditions for this. So neuroplasticity in you know, a wonderful kind of magical, constantly recreating aspect of brain is what does the work. Sort of like healing, I can't heal you. A doctor can't technically heal you, but you know, healing arises. It, it's a it's a property of our bodies. Thank thank goodness. It's a property that arises. And if you want to heal, you have to set up the causes and the conditions for healing. So you had mentioned a lot about the multimodal holistic healing. How does that work? So uh, I'm going to yeah. give you a scenario. Like I'm a veteran. I I go to my uh, VA doctor and he's treating one thing. I go to a neurologist for another thing. I go to an allergist for another. How does uh, biofeedback fit into that? Uh, say I have PTSD, for instance, using that as an example. How does that fit into the the whole body of care? Because I know a lot of people go to the VA and it's very chunked. They'll go to a doctor for this. They'll get the pills for that. And by the time they're all done, they've got 15 pills and they don't feel any better. Well, in some, some cases, if I need to, I jump in because I'm with the luxury of being a nurse. So I can be a nursing advocate for people. And what's usually needed is kind of obvious. You need a hub. You need one person that becomes the hub, whether it's the patient or whether it's the patient's spouse or uh, it could be just an outside advocate person who kind of handles all of the communication data points from all the various caregivers. And um, sometimes all of those caregivers need to meet kind of in concert on a Zoom call or you know, need to somehow all coordinate a communication thread on a client at one time. Um, polypharmacy, I think it's a really big issue. That's a good medical word. It means they're giving you too many meds that may or may not be working synergistically well with each other. Um, so I think that's something that that should always be looked at in those situations. When I say um, multimodal in my practice, it's a little bit different. Multimodal to me means, I don't know, I'm a creative person. So when someone comes in my office, I look, I assess thoroughly on all levels what's going on. I ask a bazillion weird questions. Um, you know, are you a perfectionist? Hmm, okay. Interesting. Again, you just suggest some pre-methylated uh, vitamins. The doctor needs to look at this. You know, I ask a lot of weird questions and I get the overall gestalt. And then I create an ad hoc plan. Um, and that ad hoc plan is going if to, if we really want to have good brain function, you're not going to have good brain function unless you have really great cardiovascular function. Well, you're also not going to have good brain function unless you have really good endocrine and thyroid function. 
Um, you're not going to have really good brain function if you are massively burdened with oxidative stress and oxidative issues of, you know, junk food diet and poor sleep habits and things that increase the oxidation in the body and increase inflammation. Tremendous amount of people have really abominable gut microbiomes. It's very difficult. It's not that people are bad. It's just very hard to create a healthy terrarium in our guts right now when the whole ecology is so skewed and there's so many negative inputs constantly coming to us and at us and in us. So um, multimodal to me is sort of a the model that I use is the first principles approach that they use in physics. And then the first principles is let's go to, down to the most elemental level of health and figure out where the, the client of the person is with regard to that most elemental level and build up from there. So the most elemental level of people's health is there, in my mind, in my method, and in my thinking, this is not hard science, but this is my opinion, is the electrical level. I really believe that if you don't have good redox and you don't have a good electrical charge in your cells, you're not likely to have really good health. And this is another big problem that so many Western cultured people have is uh, they don't touch the earth. And the earth is the biggest source of electrons for us throughout our lifetimes. But if you're never touching the earth and you're never getting photons on your skin and you're drinking adulterated water that's not natural and whatnot, you know, over time you're not going to have very good electrical health. And that impacts the net, the net negative charge in every single cell in your body. But if you think about it, what are the two most electrical organs that you have? Uh, your brain and your heart. Got it. And so if you don't have good electrical health, it's really going to impact those two most critical things in your body. So I like to teach people the, the quantum biological lifestyle practices. This all sounds really fancy, but it involves crazy things like seeing the sunrise and the sunset. Like wild, you know, I see the sunrise and the sunset. Be like, are you kidding me? And I said, go, go look at who won the Nobel Prize in 2017. We're not crazy. It's just new. <laughs> this is new data. It or it's old data coming back. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it's, it's just 5,000 years old. Yeah, I think the Egyptians were onto something. Yes, face east in the morning, touch the earth, and look at the sunrise. No kidding. It really, really will help your electrical health. Um, I'm closing in on 50 years old, and I have a ridiculous amount of energy. Um, I do commercial flights of stairs for exercise, and you know, I'm up to about 122 flights of stairs an hour. So it works. I know because if I stop doing it, I can't do the stairs. <laughs> so you need to learn how to how to power up your human battery. So I like to teach people these things. This is really important because if we if we do want people to have the ability to make more choices down the line that are difficult and that require actionable stuff, they need the energy. And so often the battery power, it's like the cell phone when it has 14% left charge. Can you ask a 14% left charge phone to, to play a whole movie for you. No, <clears throat> you know, you have to charge a battery. So that would be like the, the first level of this multimodal approach. Um, one of the second levels is, uh, it depends on the person and I create it in a custom for each person, but the, typically I'm also looking second at the vagal tone issue. What's your breath rate? People don't know it all the time, but I'm counting their breath. And it's really interesting. I had a, a little tiny child brought to me recently um, who had terrible ADHD problems and was on very high dose stimulants. And the family was concerned about that. And we wanted to know if there was a healthier way to cope up. So they bring her to me and I watched this beautiful young lady 
in action for about seven minutes. And I realized, I looked at her mom and I said, I don't think she's breathed since she's been here. <laughs> you know, she really had not taken a proper full respiratory cycle. She'd kind of been doing this kind of in out like kitten panting thing where there was like a little tiny air exchange going on at a rapid rate, but there wasn't a real breathing happening. And then I figured out her mouth was constantly open or her mouth was constantly open because of a bite issue. So the multimodal thing is let's, let's figure out the, you know, the most important thing. There's no way I can train a brain that doesn't have oxygen. A few minutes ago, you, you mentioned that um, you're trying to encourage your kids um, to take a deep breath before um, their tests. And that's oh, such a wonderful, noble thought. But I will say, this is actually a, a point of confusion for our entire society because we were not taught right. We were not taught correctly. My teacher, Jack Kelly, who's also a nurse, I give props to the male nurses out there. My teacher, Jack Kelly, had to teach me this like six times in a row in 2013 for me to understand it. I was like, come again, I don't understand this, Jack. He said, no, you don't understand them. You get, your brain gets oxygen resourcing differently than your body. Your body gets oxygen resourcing on the inhale. Because when you do that nice big inhale, you are powering up all of the red blood cells and then all of that oxygen is going to your muscles. The brain stem is funny. It has a reverse mechanism. So it's the CO2 level in your blood that dictates and calls the shots for how much oxygen is in your cortex. So had we been taught this properly at a young age, when, you're, when you were coaching your kids, you would say, uh, son, start with, son, please allow for a nice long exhale. Because allowing a nice long exhale is actually going to oxygenate the cortex. And so many people um, don't understand some of these basic points. So I you know, the person it does sound thing. a lot like yoga and meditation as well. Some of the same sort of thing. Similar principles. Yeah. Very, yeah. Well, that's because the um, the yoga techniques of pranayama, of breath work, are thousands of years old. And people actually figured out this whole function of the fight or flight nervous system thousands of years ago. And um, meditation, I love you off with an hour on the benefits of meditation, but um, yes, the, the reason why it sounds the same is because it's the same nervous system. <laughs> you know, humans are the same. And we all have these aspects of our nervous system. There are different ways you can access it. Um, you can access it via acupuncture. You can access uh, some of the same kind of states and training. It, there are a lot of ways you can do it. You don't have to only use feedback for sure. So what, lot is, what is something that people can do today as we're talking, to sort of help reset their brain or get out of the fight or flight, is there something that you can do at home without being hooked up to machines or being mm -hmm. guided through it? Sure. Um, lots of things. But first of all, real quickly, give a capping thought for the last question, which was multimodal. So after I look at the, the redox and the, the electrical health level and the beta level, we will optimize sleep. If your sleep is, is not optimized, you're not likely to have optimal wellness, period. We look at nutrition, we look at hydration, we look at stimulus, we look at cognitive enrichment. And so all of these things are sort of like building a house and you build it the layers of the house and you build wellness that way. That's what I mean by multimodal. And multimodal also means for some people, I might use biofeedback and neurofeedback. For some people, I might use neuromotor exercises. For some people, we might need to refer them out to a dietitian to talk to somebody about a ketogenic diet. So multimodal means 
many faceted and lots of interests. So back to actionable. So one of the most profound things is to understand how the breath rate shifts you in or out of fight or flight. It's the most always with us um, point of entry for this work. It's always with you and it's all and it's free to do this work too. It's very cool. Um, whenever you first let me back up and say talk about respiratory weight. So the average human respiratory rate has a large range. You know, humans can can breathe on average probably between four breaths a minute all the way up to 24 breaths a minute would probably be the bulk of all breathing. And where you are in that that uh, continuum tells you what part of the nervous system you're using. Am I in fight or flight or am I at rest and digest mode? And generally speaking, first of all, one respiratory cycle is one inhale plus one exhale. I have to clarify that. Some people are a little bit unsure. Was an inhale one and exhale two? No. Inhale plus exhale is one cycle. And so um, the name of the game is, first of all, awareness. So one of my most basic homeworks for everybody is, I would like this week for you to try to um, just assess in a non-judgmental way. There's no good. There's no bad to any of it. Just what is? What is your general respiratory rate when you're at rest? I don't. I don't need to know after you had a you know, argument with somebody or after you've been running errands for three hours and you just got down the chair. No, I want to know what's the general state of affairs. And sometimes you have to ask a spouse to assess because it's hard sometimes to count your own breath rate. But figure out what the breath rate is. I can totally figure, you know, as soon as you start thinking about your breath rate, you start changing it. You start modulating. It's very difficult. Yes. So that it's kind of a, again, it's just something you play with and you figure out how to do it. You just tune into your nervous system and the flavor of the speed that you're going and hold it. And then you look at your watch, what I do, and you look at your watch and you count that, you just hold that same respiratory rate for maybe 15 seconds or 30 seconds and you quarter double it. You want to be really good, you can go the whole way around for a very accurate count. So the first, first level is awareness, what is. And many people, they have no clue what their respiratory rate is. They have no clue what normal is. They have no clue what ideal is. And I... Uh, I like to teach people that, that the ideal respiratory rate for most people, there are certainly many exceptions, but for most people, it's somewhere around five and a half to six breaths a minute. As a matter of fact, in the old yoga scripture somewhere, I don't know where it is, but somewhere it, it calls six breaths a minute the gateway to bliss. So if you are breathing 10 respiratory cycles a minute or less, then you are you have the luxury to be in, in uh, rest and digest mode. For every breath rate a minute above 10, you're you're going into ever-increasing levels of physiologic fight or flight. And it's important to understand, depending on the kind of brain you have or the kind of life experiences you have, you may have been locked into fight or flight pretty much most of your life. And so you might be sitting in your easy chair watching your favorite show and your respiratory rate is 22 and you are definitely in physiologic fight or flight but you don't feel anxious. You don't have an awareness that something's wrong. You're just you're just you, you know. And so it's just really interesting to, to understand these these data points. And it's also super critical for for your veterans that have um, the TBI because you need real healing, deep healing, and deep healing, and real healing is only going to come in that rest and digestion. So the actionable things are this, and it, you know. 
I'm going to give you something extremely conservative because we have to be conservative with this work, especially with a population that um, does have a lot of PTSD in the mix. If someone has been locked in fight or flight for a long, 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 long time, then they probably have a big trauma burden built up in the back of the brain. And the brain helps to sublimate that by putting one foot on the gas pedal and one foot on the brake, metaphorically speaking, in the nervous system at all times. So, and that creates a lot of noise, a lot in the EEG that has kind of a sublimating, disassociative type effect to the trauma content that's built up in the brain. So if you do too much breath work, or you do too precociously, you, know, you jump in it too hard, too fast, or you do too much, you run the risk of making things worse, not better. So I like to give that caveat. If anybody has psychological challenges and or big trauma history, they should not think that Lynn said, well, five breaths a minute is going to solve all my problems, and I'm going to do this all day, every day for the next umpteen weeks and fix everything. In principle, that's true. However, in actuality, what can happen if you do too much too quickly, you kind of get the emotional bends. It's called an ab reaction. So too much subconscious content can come up too quickly. But please don't be scared by that. It's just a data point. You need to say, okay, I need to do this, but you know, apples are good for me. Eating three bags of apples at once, probably not good for me. So same kind of a principle. Please don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and think I'm going to go back to my 22 breaths a minute. So the, op, the, the thing is, that that heavy duty emotional content in the back of the brain in the very beginning when you start to work with it it's a little bit like a pressure cooker and we have to respect that and honor that and not violate that we have to give it just a small little opening of release so it can go and just release a little bit of that stuff and release it a little bit over time through the breath work and in my office i work with in the counseling office and so usually people are doing this kind of work i also coordinate with counselors because i'm a nurse and i I don't get into the trauma, direct trauma stuff, but I can teach people these principles so that they can start to look for the trauma. So, um, if somebody is interested in getting involved, uh, they know somebody in their family that's having mm-hmm. a challenge, not quite a hundred percent performance. They're in fight or flight with TBI or PTSD or some other challenge. How do they get in touch with you or uh, with Peak Performance? How do they figure out? a good biofeedback or neurofeedback practitioner? Um, That's a really good question. And it depends on the region. It depends on the area. We have um, a handful, not very many, but we have a handful of practitioners in the central Virginia region. We have some um, colleagues in Northern Virginia. We have some colleagues in the colleagues in the Virginia beach area. Um, I believe there's some practitioners out towards the college towns. I got in Blacksburg and Redford places like that too. Uh, I would start with your general practitioner and ask them. Uh, they, they may or may not know anyone. You also might ask acupuncturists. Sometimes they know who the neurofeedback people are. You can also go on the, on the websites for the various neurofeedback companies. Uh, some of the most famous ones would be, and if somebody says, hey, I've got a, a cousin in Kalamazoo. Do you know anybody that does neurofeedback in Kalamazoo? The first thing I do is I go to eeginfo.com. That is the parent company for the equipment that I use. And they have a find a practitioner function. You can also go to brainmaster.com. This is a different form of neurofeedback called QEEG, uh, also very reputable and evidence-based. Um, 
they have a, a listserv thing kind of where you can go and look for a practitioner. Mm-hmm. And you also just might type, nerd, you know, into the Google search bar, nerd feedback, and then your city and town, and things will probably come up. That's true for me. Type nerd feedback, and I'm pretty sure it comes up. So if they're looking for you and they want to uh, talk to you, how do they get in touch with you? Um, you can call my cell phone, uh, leave me a voicemail, you can email me, um, you can visit my website and drop me a little message to the website. My phone number is 804-548-3724. And your website is? And my website is um, www.richmondpeakperformance, all one word, dot com. And my email is Lynn Lennon RN. So it's Lynn with no E, no dashes, no dots, no spaces. L Y N N L E N N O N and then R N for registers. Dot com. Oh, sorry. At gmail.com. Dot <laughs> com too. But it's Lynn Lennon RN at gmail.com. So you're welcome to drop me an email. And I have an online schedule if anybody wants to make an appointment. But I'm also, you know, if uh, you know a veteran that's in need. You're welcome to connect me. I'll do the best I can to help you connect into the network. There, there's also this kind of underground of practitioners like me that have different sources of funding for helping U.S. veterans, US veterans either completely uh, with a you know, totally pro bono or you're subsidized and you can offer discount services. We've been talking with Lynn Lennon of Peak Performance. It's in Richmond. The website is richmondpeakperformance.com. And she has shared a number of wonderful things about new ways to treat some of these very common issues, especially in veterans. And Lynn, thank you so much for spending the time with us at Coming Home Well. Thank you so much, David Payson. I really appreciate it. Welcome back to Coming Home Well. And uh, you guys are in the coach's corner. What's going on? This is Alfredo Torres. I am a career coach. I help people transitioning um, out of the military and moving into the civilian world. And um, today, what we're going to talk about, you know what? We're going to switch it up a little bit. Normally, we try to talk about the the, the service member themselves and what's going to, how you can help the service member, you know, the fa- you as the family, uh, as the spouse, as the parent. But you know what? Today, we're going to talk about you. What are you doing to help yourself? Okay. Um, a lot of times, you know, there's, there's no playbook. There's no instruction manual on how to be a military spouse, how to be a military parent, how to be a military caregiver. There's nothing out there. But yet there is plenty of information that's out there. You know, I'm a uh, these new fancy computer machines that they got out there that they didn't have when we were kids. And, you know, the interwebs, as they like to call them, you know, so everything is at the touch of a thing at your fingertips, literally. Okay. And and I'm going to talk about two big um, information sources that you can use to help prepare you or, or, or to help guide you as you go along in this journey of being a military, uh, a military supporter, I'll put it that way because that'll encompass everybody. Uh, the first one is an organization which is which is an, a really really great organization, and it's called Blue Star Families. They're an all volunteer force, and they are the families of these um, 
volunteer, uh, excuse me, they're the families of, of our military service members. So these are the spouses. These are the parents. These are the children. These are the siblings who are there dealing with this stuff. The same things you're dealing with. And they find um, solidarity and they find uh, comfort in each other. Blue Star Families has an incredible network. And, and it's not just about getting together with them, but they also help you with stuff. They help you with job opportunities. They they have a great network of companies that they know are, uh, that, that hire military spouses. Now, military spouses, as, as we all know, um, have a unique issue in that they honestly put their careers second to their marriage and uh, to the military member and the military member's career because of the fact that you're constantly moving and you're constantly picking up the family and and not only moving them across the street but in some cases across the ocean so the blue star families organization uh which you can find at bluestarfam.org can help you out a lot when it comes to um uh again looking for that support that's out there but one of the other ones in case you know you know, some people are, are not the type that uh, th- that want to reach out to other people. They want to keep things on their own. And, and that's fine, too. If, if you're one of those types, then there's uh, Military One Source. Now, Military One Source is a website, which is exactly what it says. One source to help you with anything in the military. And if you go onto the website, there's a section that's called the Military Life Cycle. Now, this is something that's extremely, extremely beneficial for you, regardless of where you're at, okay? So we got two nice ones uh, for you to uh, to check out. Again, Blue Star Families, for you to go and, and, and talk to somebody and, and get some help and, and, and start that networking cycle with, with, with others who are in your situation. And then, of course, Military One Source, a great website. It's militaryonesource.mil. Check those sites out. I think um, th- they'll be able to help you out. Tyler, you got anything? Alfredo, are there any resources here in Virginia for spouses, especially the spouses after they get out of the military? You know, their, their husbands or their wives are coming home. They're trying to find a job. There's a million resources for them. Is there anything in Virginia that you know about? Yeah. The the Virginia Department of Veterans Services, anything that's available to the service member is available to the spouse. I didn't know that. Yes. So if, um, you know, so let's say uh, you're married, you're a veteran, and you're looking for a job. Well, you know, obviously the the state of Virginia will help you. But let's say your spouse is looking for a job. Well, the same people that you talk to to help you, you talk to them. And there's been a huge push with understanding that military spouses are are underutilized. And so uh, in Virginia, they have the Virginia Values Veterans Initiative. It's a cert- it's a state certification that um, companies can earn that teaches them how to be veteran friendly. Well. They started this year adding a military spouse component to it so that now 
along with those companies, and currently there's over 1,200 companies that are that are V3 certified. Now they're giving those companies incentives to to push for hiring um, military spouses, and we're not talking about small companies either. We're talking about companies like Booz Allen Hamilton, General Dynamics, uh, Dominion Power and Energy. So we're talking some big companies that are out there. I didn't aware, I was not aware at all that the Department of Veterans Services here in Virginia offered all those services to veterans, spouses and, and family members, I guess. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest challenges I know that family members have is getting education because the veterans, you know, they had the GI bill, they have all sorts of resources, mm-hmm. but these people have given up their careers. They've moved, they've, they've really transitioned their whole life. And now their veteran is out. They don't have that support network. Now I know that there is uh, for a hundred percent permanently and total disabled veterans. Uh, there's a training program or education program. Are you talking about the, the MISDE, the, the VMISDEP program? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, the VMISDEP program, which uh, stands for the, the, the Virginia Military Dependent Survivor uh, Education, Education program. program. There right. we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, is a program that's set up uh, to for, for spouse and, and dependent children. If you are uh, have a disability rating of 90% or greater, then you qualify, spouse or your children qualify for 48 months of schooling paid for, for free, for any Virginia uh, state college or university. So if they want to attend a public school, it's completely free, no fees or tuition? No no fees or tuition. And we're talking about Virginia Tech, University of of, of Virginia, Old Dominion University, any of the the, um, uh, community colleges. So all the state schools are for 90% or more disabled veterans. Right. Now, if you're 90% or more and it's combat related, well, then you get a stipend on top of that. Are there anything else for uh, family members here in Virginia if they're not 90 or 100%? And actually, I, I just called up a list that I have, and it's a uh, a four page list of different um, scholarships, grants, and fellowships that are allowed, and it's all different kinds of of um, awards that are out there. A lot of schools will have uh, scholarships for veterans, but I, I'll make sure that I get you this. Um, I mean, th- there's so many different, uh, you know, as I'm looking at this list. There's so many different scholarships. And here's the thing. When it comes to, to applying for scholarships, people don't do it. You know, they, they don't think of um, uh, that they're going to get it. So they don't apply or they'll see it's, you know, it's one hundred dollars or five hundred dollars. And they go, ah, that's nothing. It, it does take a quite a bit of effort to go after those. So that sounds like a, a good suggestion and starting point for families that are, mm-hmm. are trying to transition, which is uh, an area I don't think gets as much attention uh, for the spouses that are not coming home well or right. as well as they could be, especially when they've given up their career or, or their jobs and their network. So that's a it's, great tip there, Alfredo. Well, thanks. You know, it's, it's one of those things, again, that that we look at and we don't think about. Um, and especially us as, as service members, we're so uh, wrapped up in, in our lives and our transferring and, and, and all the stuff that comes with the military side that we that we do tend to forget that 
you know, our spouses are giving up their entire social network. You know, these kinds of things, blue star families uh, and, and going to that military um, one stop can can really help them out. Once again, military one stop. Great, a, a great website for you to go to. Blue Star Families, great organization. As always, you can get on the Internet and just Google military family support or something along those lines, you're going to get organizations. Remember to vet them. Don't just go to anybody who, who says that they're there. Check them out. Make sure that they're reliable. Uh, and if you do that, you know, you, you're going to start off with a good, solid founding. Uh, again, this is Alfredo Torres. This is Coach's Corner. And now let's go back to coming home well. I really appreciate all the information Alfredo had about family members that are also coming home. And they may not have served in the military, but the challenges they face are very similar. And we will be posting all the scholarships and grants on the Facebook page, and we'll get it up on the website. So if you're looking for that information, just go to the Coming Home Well Facebook page or comminghomewell.com and We'll make sure that it's up there and you can find it. Now, obviously, they'll have to be updated from time to time. Speaking of keeping things updated, we are working on getting the latest shows up on the podcast. So if you're looking for a podcast of one of our previous shows, we hope to have them up this week. Uh, so give us some time. It's a little bit more of a technical challenge uh, converting it from the radio over to the podcast, but we are definitely getting that done. If you have somebody that you are interested or you thought would be a good guest, get in touch with us. Go to cominghomewell.com, click on the contact us link, and Provide their names. We're always looking for people that are interested in helping veterans and would like to get their story out on the air. And while you're on cominghomewell.com, click on the donate button. Your donations go a long way to keeping us on the air. Thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. Until all are home and all are well, this is Coming Home Well. Thank you. Coming Home Well, helping civilians better help veterans.